So last week was, was radically different, right? We didn't do Timothy, we did the Lord's Supper, and we had a picture of what it is for the body of Christ to come together. And the whole service was structured and, and really was hopefully what it was meant to accomplish, hopefully it accomplished, was directing us all to reflection of Jesus and the role that he's going to play in our lives. Now, the week before that, we finished out a pretty major section in the book of Philippians. You see, as you're reading through books of the Bible, you're, you're going to encounter certain thematic segments, you're going to encounter certain larger units, and so you have you know, the typical paragraph unit, which, which speaks to you know, one purpose, and then you have larger ones that all are kind of ornaments of what it is, and all these paragraphs build on that. Well, last Sunday, two Sundays ago, we finished a section. We finished 127 through 218. And that section centered around the idea of what Paul started in 127 when he said, be worthy of the gospel. And he talked a lot about unity. And he talked a lot about you know, thinking the same thing, having the same love, being in full accord, thinking the same thing. And then he goes into this Christ hymn in 2, 5 through 11. And the idea is that as we look and we reflect upon Christ, that we are enabled to do these things, right? Inasmuch as we are faithful to him and we reflect upon him and not those things going on around us, we stay true to the gospel. We stay true to the gospel. So it's a lot about not looking at me and what I want, looking at what others and what others want, and reflecting upon Christ, For the next two weeks, Paul gives us examples of people that do exactly that. So this Sunday, we're going to take a look at Timothy, and next Sunday, we're going to take a look at Epaphroditus, and we're going to take a look at two people that Paul gives us as examples that do exactly what he wrote about in 127 through 218. Let me read those for us now. Verses 19 through 24 of chapter 2. Paul writes, he says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. And then he changes it up. He says, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I therefore, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly... I myself will come also. So when Paul starts this off and he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus, what we encounter here is Paul giving us indication of of how he bases his ideas, how he bases plans in his life. And it's instructive to a certain degree to see that Paul doesn't write and says, all right guys, uh, in six months, eight days, and three hours from now, I will disembark and I will begin on a journey that will take me from Rome to Philippi, to Philippi, or Philippi. Um, it's a new pronunciation. It's found in the New American Standard. Uh, Philippi. No, you see, when he writes that, he says, man, this is my understanding. And I live my life in such a way that God has revealed to me that this is the plan that he has for me. I'm going to leave here and I'm going to come to Philippi. Now, we encounter the same thing in James. You see, in James, James writing to a, to a situation where people were so boastful and so prideful and arrogant about all the plans that they were going to make that he offers them a corrective of sort on that. And in James chapter 4, verse 13, he writes to them and says, Come now, 
You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such a place, into such a town, and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. He sounds like a, uh, you know, a business person today speculating on, on what the next year is going to be like, forecasting on what the next year is going to look like. In verse 14, he says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. You see, we see here in Paul not an example of how our, our verbal exactitude should be. You know, Paul's not giving us a formula for how to do things. You say, somebody walks up and says, hey man, are you going to go to college in the fall? And you're like, oh, I know the answer to this one. And you say, okay, I got it. If the Lord wills in the fall to college, uh, no, that's okay. Um, yes, no, I mean, I hope, I'm pretty... I hope in the Lord to fall on... And so you're trying to try and put this together. Somebody says, you know, are you going to... What are your plans for the future? And you're trying to put together this thought, and you're like, well, uh, yeah. See, Paul's not trying to give us a formula for how to communicate living in the will of God. But what Paul is doing, and what he's going to hit at again at the end of this section, is that our lives need to be based more on what God would have for us than what I would have for us. So as we sit and we make decisions on where we're going to go to college, as you're picking between schools, the thought needs to enter into your mind primarily, man, where would God have me to go? When the thought comes to your mind of what job you'll take as you get employment opportunities before you, the first thought you ask shouldn't be, what does retirement look like? It shouldn't even be, what does the health benefit look like? Nor should it even be, what city is it in? You see, the question that you should ask first is, what would God have me do? You see, Paul lived a life solely directed upon being found in a life with strict adherence to the gospel. And so when situations came up in front of him, he could say, not in such a way to be formulaic, but in such a way to represent his life, as I hope in the Lord. You see, Paul's hope in the Lord was to send Timothy to Philippi. He wanted to send Timothy there to minister to them. So this isn't some spiritual language about future plans, but an actual way that he lives. And this is interesting. We see that Paul is somehow tied to the Philippians. He says, I want to send Timothy there so that I too may be cheered by news of you. And how wrapped up in the Philippians is Paul? That sending Timothy there that receiving what he hopes to be a positive report back from Timothy could affect Paul. This is the depth of love that he has for, for the people that he started their church. You see, in Acts 16, we read about Paul being tied in with Timothy. We read about the starting of the Philippian church. And we see there that this relationship that started probably a decade before has continued. And Paul has such a deep care for them that he is able to tie his happiness with their outcome. And in continuing in verse 20, we read his continued discussion of Timothy, and he says, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. You see, Paul writes, and he talks about Timothy, he says, Man, Timothy is utterly unique. 
I've got no one else like Timothy. Now, this is, it would be ridiculous if Timothy somehow had one earlobe that was grotesquely larger than the other. And when he said, I have no one else like Timothy, and they all nod like, man, he does have a big earlobe. Or, you're right, he has chronic bad breath. You see, when Paul writes and he says, I have no one else like Timothy, what he's doing is setting Timothy aside. He's completely setting him aside from the pattern of everybody else. He says, I have no one like him. And this is what that means. That he will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That he'll be genuinely concerned for their welfare. Have you ever noticed that if somebody walks up to you and they say, I I really need you to pray for my third cousin twice removed on my stepmother's side. I don't, I'm not really sure of their name, but I need you to pray for them. And you have a really hard time caring for that person, right? I mean, you'll, you'll pray for them if you've admitted or if you've agreed to do that. But actually giving care for that person is something that we have a hard time doing. Actually, really being burdened for that person is something we have a really hard time doing because we really don't have a whole lot of of contact with that person. You see, when Paul here writes about Timothy, he uses this word genuine. He says he will have a genuine concern for you. And this is the picture that he paints. He paints a picture of a family. You see, what Paul is telling them is the concern that Timothy will have for you what would be like if somebody came up and said, I need you to pray for your mother. Your mother's got cancer. You see, this isn't something they have to work very hard to create a longing and a deep, deep sense of urgency on your part, is it? So we want to pray for our mother. Or as a parent, somebody walks up and says, your child has been gravely injured. Would you mind praying for your child? And you're like, well, I'm kind of busy right now. Could you come back in five minutes? No, I mean, when somebody asks you and they tell you, hey, your child is injured, would you pray for them? Instantaneous, we're overcome with this burden and this desire to take their request before the throne. And everything that was on our plate before us falls away. See, this is the type of person Timothy is. Timothy is the type of person that puts others' needs ahead of his own. Timothy is the type of person who knows what it is to be worthy of the gospel. Timothy is the type of person, as Paul says, is unique. What are we concerned with? Are we concerned with, you know, with our plans for the week? And for those of us that are big into dove hunting... You know, where are we going to go dove hunting on the day when open, opening, season start, opening day of the season starts next Saturday? You know, I've been pretty concerned about that, actually, uh, Joe. Really. So, Joe's working it out. He gave me the affirmative nod. But what are we giving our care to? Are we wrapped up and tied in concern with the idea that Mary's going to go to China and she's going to bring back a little girl? Are those the types of things we're praying for? Are those the types of things we're giving our care to? in our attention to? Or are we so in-focused and so focused on, on what I want and where I need to be, man, we completely drop out everybody around us. 
You see, I submit to you that Paul here is giving us an example of a person who lives a pattern of life that we should follow. That we might be concerned and that it might be genuine for those around us. Now, this is kind of difficult. In 21, Paul writes, and he says, For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, let me set this up for you. Paul, you'll remember, is in prison in Rome. He's likely dictating this letter to somebody. So Paul is speaking these words out loud, and somebody's scrolling them out. Somebody else is writing this thing. Paul's not writing it by hand. And so when Paul is saying these things, you can imagine he's talking about Timothy. Timothy's over here in the corner. He's knitting sweaters for orphans. He's you know, baking bread in the, in the other corner for people that don't have bread. And so when Paul's, Paul's writing, he's like, he looks over at Timothy. He's like, man, that guy's awesome. I've got nobody like Timothy. And you've got some kind of light cronies in the other side of the room. He's like, but they all seek their own interests. You can imagine their ears start to perk up, and they're like, what? Man, I hate Timothy. Why can't I be like that guy? You see, Paul isn't actually separating people. He's like, no, Timothy's fantastic, but all you other jokers are awful. Because if that was the case, the guys writing it would be like, what'd you say? You write your own letter, Bubba. You see, when Paul says that, what he's offering, in one sense, is a hyperbole. He's, he's put Timothy far beyond everybody else. But we know from reading earlier in, the, earlier in the book of Philippians that, man, there are those in 115 through 17, Paul says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. But check this out. He says, but others from goodwill. Some do it because of what they want to become and what they want to make their name famous for, but others do it solely because they want to see the gospel advanced. See, Paul's not saying Timothy is good and everybody else is bad. What Paul is doing is saying Timothy is so much better that everybody else's goodness just kind of pales in comparison of how good and how great Timothy is. But he creates this, this foil. And in 2, 3 through 4, Paul gives us an example of what we don't want to be. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You see, all these people seek after their own interests. All these people seek after their own interests. The great evangelist Leonard Ravenhill wrote a number of years ago, and he asked this question. He says, is what you're living for worth Christ dying for? Man, now that's a tough question. He says, is what you're currently living, pursuing, seeking to accomplish, is that pattern of life worth Christ dying for? Man, that is a difficult question. So as we pursue advancement in our job, as we pursue the gathering of wealth, as we pursue a better education, as we pursue increasing our family. I mean, none of these are bad things. You see, I'm, I'm working on my PhD right now. I'm not saying education is bad. And it's good to, to seek to do well in all areas and all avenues of life. But the question is, and the corrective is, is when you begin to make that the most important thing, when you begin to make that the number one thing, and Christ is kind of a distant 
you know, five or six down the list, when you actually start to look at it, then you're not seeking the interest of, of Christ. You might delude yourself into believing that you actually are. But you fall into the, that category of people that seek their own interests above those of the gospel. You see, the question for Leonard Ravenhill should pierce us in our soul. Is what we're living for worth Christ dying for? You see, in verse 22, Paul continues on talking about Timothy. And he said, you know, Timothy is, is unique. He'll seek after your interest. But all those others, they just seek after their own ways and not that of Christ. They're opposed to Christ and their behaviors and their actions. But in 22, he says, but you know Timothy's proven worth. You know Timothy's proven worth. If we go back and you're curious as to the background of Paul's relationship with Timothy and you flip over to Acts 16, you read about the young Timothy that was partnered with Paul. Partnered with Paul around the time of the start of the church in Philippi and they began journeying together and you got to see Paul in prison. You got to see Paul shipwrecked. You got to see Paul beaten. You got to see Paul run out of town. You got to see Paul starve. You got to see Paul be rejoiced. And you got to see Paul in every phase. And he didn't abandon him. He didn't, when the going got really tough, completely bail out on him and say, man, I, I signed up for this, but you, you're just a little too radical, Paul. Have you ever thought about maybe taking a course on how to be a little friendlier? Because you're coming off a little abrasive. You see, Timothy was a man of proven worth. In Romans 3, we see how this is developed. Paul writing in the book of Romans said, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance character, and character hope. And hope does not, sh- not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, Timothy has this character And this character is developed through suffering. And this character is developed through enduring that suffering. And so when Paul writes and he says that you know Timothy, he says this is the guy that a decade or so before that I was there in Philippi with, that we shared the gospel with Lydia, that that Silas and I were imprisoned, and that God set us free, and then we shared with the Philippian jailer, and then we started the church there in Philippi. You remember Timothy. Man, Timothy's been with me all these years. I'm sure you've heard some stories about all the crazy places I've been thrown out of. How in, uh, in, in, in Greece, in Athens, I was up on the Areopagus, and I was sharing with these people that were complete heathens. And I shared with people that ran me out of town. You heard about Thessalonica. Man, those are some rough times. Timothy. Timothy wasn't afraid of those things. Timothy is a man of proven worth. You see, Timothy's proven worth is interesting because it is tied to the propagation of the gospel. Paul writes, he says, Timothy is just like a son serving with his father. You see, Paul doesn't write to Timothy, and you'll remember if you reflect back on the first week when Paul writes, and he refers to he and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. Now he's tying that back in. And he says, 
Timothy serve with me as a son. So they have this close relationship, this father-son relationship. And he doesn't say he served me in the propagation of the gospel. He says he served with me. See, Paul's all about lowering himself and elevating those he's around. It's all about lowering himself and elevating those he's around. And he says of Timothy that this guy served alongside me. And he was found to be faithful in advancing the gospel. See, what are you and I doing to advance the gospel? What are you and I doing to serve the cause of Christ? Timothy had a proven track record of fidelity to the gospel. But this is the interesting thing. Paul tries to, to tie it in on one more level. You see, because they're beginning to be convinced and reminded that Timothy is somebody with a lifestyle that they should model theirs after. But check out what Paul does here. You'll remember in the Christ hymn, speaking of Christ, he said, you have the mind of Christ in you. And in verse 7, speaking of Christ, he said, but he emptied himself. And what form did he take? Taking the form of a servant. Now Paul here writes of Timothy and says that Timothy served in the advancement of the gospel. Paul setting it up and saying, Timothy is a man who exhibits the mind of Christ. Timothy understood that at the very basis of what it is to be Christian is to advance the gospel and that he served well. And so continuing on in verse 23, we read, and Paul says, And I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. See, Paul, you'll remember, is in, is in prison. And he wrote, and he said that, man, I certainly hope to get out, and I think that's what's going to happen. I hope in God that that will happen. But he says, he says this, he says, I know that I will be free. Because as Paul writes in chapter 1 and verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He knows his freedom is going to come in one of two ways. Either he's going to be set free, that's fantastic. He can continue his ministry, go back to Philippi, continue his ministry in Rome and other places, or he's going to be put to death. But for Paul, in his understanding of the gospel, is that gives him a closer relationship with Christ. And so for him to live as Christ and to die is to gain more Christ. And so here he comes back to it and he says, man, I hope, I hope on this future promise and my understanding of what God has told me to send him to you soon, just as soon as I see how it will go with me. But we also read in verse 24 that, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. You see, we begin to see the gravity of the situation taking place here in Philippi that the basic gist of what's going on in Philippi is that there are people that are more concerned with themselves and, and their appearance and their own acceptance and getting what they want than they are with the gospel. And so step one is sending somebody to go tell them that they need a course corrective. And so Paul sends Epaphroditus and he sends him with this letter. And that's meant to be a course corrective. Step two is Timothy's going to be coming. 
And the third step, to point at the severity of disunity. Man, if you don't believe that disunity in us getting along under the lordship of Christ is important, Paul's addressing them not just in a letter, not just in a missionary from their own church, not just in Timothy, a man of proven worth, but that he himself was planning a trip to Philippi to address this very subject, which is opposed to the gospel. You see, pursuing selfish motives is opposed to the gospel. Paul's going after it with a sense of urgency and a sense of tenacity that he absolutely would not relinquish. You see, as we think about our lives and we think about the things that God is going to do in this church, my prayer as of late has just been, God, I pray that you would use us. I pray that you would use Ridgecrest to advance the gospel in Greenville, in Hunt County, in Texas, and around the world. But let me tell you what comes with that request. Suffering, anguish, and it's going to be proven, it's going to be shown who in their lives gives strict fidelity to the Word of God and who's a casual attender of church. You see, because when we ask God to use us, I'm reminded that as we go through, we find people that God used mightily, he also wounded and allowed to be wounded. Man, Paul had many beatings, many sufferings, and many really painful things happened to him. But would you, would you say that Paul is used mightily by God? When you look at the disciples... Each of, which met, each of which met a pretty painful end, but they were used mightily by God. And so we don't just ask that God would bless us with the understanding that everything is going to be perfect, that we're going to find unity, that we're going to reach the lost for Him, and it's going to be painless. But understand this, that when we ask that God would use us, first He has to make us into a people that He can use. Let me pray for us.